Hi, everyone. Um, we're about to uh, listen to God's Word. So if you want to turn to page 7, uh, we're going to read the whole book of Obadiah because it's a very short book. We don't get to usually do that. So um, I'll give you a few seconds and then I'll get straight into it. The Vision of Obadiah. This is what the Sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your hearts has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, Who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set, you, set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, Teman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down to in, in the slaughter because of the violence against your brother Jacob. You'll be covered with shame, and you'll be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof, while strangers carried, off, uh, strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates, and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not, await, you should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. As you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire, and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble, and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken." People from Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau. The people from the foothills will possess the lands of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath, and exiles from Jerusalem who are in Zepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Delivers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. The next reading comes from the New Testament. It's from Romans uh, chapter 8, and it goes like this. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for, all, for, for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give up all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Is it God who justifies? Who then is the one? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. 
Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Great. Thanks, Sam, for bringing us our Bible readings. Where's Sam gone? Oh, there you are. Thanks for uh, bringing our readings to us. My name's Craig. I'm the minister here at the Garrison, and uh, if I haven't had a chance to say good day to you this afternoon, welcome. I extend my welcome to Emma's, and uh, I do hope that this afternoon will be a time of encouragement, and, um, and even later this evening as we share in a meal together, that that might be a real joy. Um, it was really interesting when uh, giving an interview uh, on the biblical prophets, who is what we're reading over the next few weeks here at church, uh, and also on the wisdom literature, uh, Eugene Peterson gave this reflection. He said, poets tell us what our eyes blurred with too much gawking and our ears dulled with too much chatter miss around and within us. Poets use words to drag us into the depth of reality itself. I'm going to pray for us as we reflect upon this minor prophet we're looking at today, Obadiah, um, that God may actually use his words, prophetic, poetic, uh, just to speak into our life. So let me pray for us now. Uh, Dear Lord and Father, uh, please speak to us uh, in our minds and in our hearts uh, as we reflect upon your word and who you are. We thank you that we can know you through your word and so lead us uh, to know you more this afternoon. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the, the prophets, as we've seen these last three weeks, they're an odd bunch, but they really were often quite poetic uh, as they criticised and also energised their listeners. And their words can at times be jarring because they seek to sort of bump us out of our fantasy, uh, which is doing nothing for us, really, and lead us into the both ugly and hope-filled reality of this created world. And so we arrive at our fourth minor prophet called Obadiah. Um, Obadiah is a word for a defeated people. Uh, Understanding the Old Testament prophets, as we've seen, involves understanding the history of the nation of Israel. And you'll see that there's a map there in your zines of the Middle East around 830 BC. And there's a couple of things to note. You'll notice that the nation of Israel is divided into the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah. Uh, This was a really negative thing where God's people decided to split and separate over power and dominance. But you'll see it there on the map. You'll note the nation of Edom 
which we'll hear about today, is to the southwest of Judah. Uh, You'll notice peeking its head into the top left of the map is Assyria. Um, A whole bunch of different things there that you can learn from this ancient map. The biblical text we are reading today was written a couple of hundred years after this political map. But I sort of wanted us to have this snapshot of it to see what happens next. By the time of Obadiah writing his prophecy, um, Assyria has marched in from the top left of the map and they have actually invaded and destroyed Israel. And Babylon has just invaded and defeated Judah. Um, But Babylon's not on the map because I think it's a little bit further out to the east. Anyway, this is where we are in the historical timeline of humanity. And Obadiah is sitting in the ruins of Jerusalem. I guess you could say he's like Job after his house has been destroyed and his family have been killed. Or he's like the disciples on the day that Jesus is arrested and convicted and tortured and crucified. Um, Or he's like me or perhaps you when the good things that I was so certain God was going to give me never came and I was left feeling isolated or distant from God. Whatever it could be, but this is our minor prophet Obadiah. And in what is the shortest Old Testament book, 21 verses, we read the whole book this afternoon, Obadiah has two things to declare. Number one, the Edomites will be judged for what they have done. And number two, God's kingdom will be the one that lasts. So let me bring you up to speed, because the kingdom of Edom and the kingdom of Judah were really closely linked. Uh, Going back many, many, many years, these kingdoms actually came from the same family. So this is why you need a little bit of upskilling when you read the prophets, because you kind of need to know what happened before. But that's okay, because we can work it out. In Genesis, we read that Abraham and Sarah had a son, Isaac. Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, Uh, They had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob, he had 12 sons who became the tribes of Israel and the nation of Israel. And Esau had five sons. And his five sons grew up and their descendants to become the nation of Edom. The brothers, you can read in Genesis, but also the nations that came from their family line never really got along. But, and this is a true story, when Babylon actually came in in 587 BC and invaded Judah, not only did Edom not come and help, instead they actually rushed in and plundered Judah in their time of weakness, when they are under attack from the Babylonians. It's like hearing your sibling is really sick and in hospital and then going over and robbing their home. That's kind of the setup for this nation of Edom, or at least how it was understood at the time of writing. And so Obadiah is sitting in a ruined city and he's reflecting on everything that has happened and his opening message is this, that the Edomites will be judged for what they have done. Now, it's interesting how he frames up such a judgment. It's not just that they've sort of done the wrong thing, 
Rather, it is their pride and it's their arrogance that he initially focuses on. Obadiah declares God's word of judgment in the opening verses, and in effect, he is saying, you who think you're untouchable, you who think you are beyond threat, uh, verse 4, you who soar like an eagle and make your nest in the stars, I think that's a reference to both uh, Edom's aspirations, but also they did live in the hill countries, so they were up there. From there, verse 4, the Lord says, I will bring you down. It is their pride and arrogance that Obadiah rebukes Edom for. It is actually the state of their heart that is the issue first and foremost. But then in verse 11, he gets on to the specifics of what they actually did, the actions that flow from their heart. Verse 11 On the day you stood aloof, while strangers carried off Judah's wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. And Obadiah concludes in verse 18, there will be no survivors from Esau. This is pretty confronting. Obadiah is pronouncing judgment. And it's a terrible judgment on this nation. Uh, But I guess you could say it's not a judgment without reason, because a lot of the opening text is the reason for the judgment. But I wonder whether we have, either now as we read this, or any of these last few weeks as we're reading the Minor Prophets, I wonder whether we have an uneasy or a conflicted relationship with the idea of a God who judges. Um, I certainly have, over the time, a God who judges like this. As I was sitting with this idea this week, three things came to mind as to why I'm conflicted with a judging God. Um, And you may share these with me, you may not, but I'll put them out there just for us to explore. Firstly, I think we are rightly wary of anyone who's in an untouchable position having the authority over life and death. Uh, We have too many examples of people abusing untouchable authority and doing great evil with it. The examples are too numerous to share, and so I won't list off a bunch of examples now. But it is hard to imagine, I think, what the Bible calls God's holiness. Holiness means his otherness or his complete difference to us. Um, Yes, God is all-powerful, more so actually than any human ruler, and yes, he is judge. But he combines those two in a way that we've never seen, a way that is right, and it's good, and it's actually just. But I admit from my frame of reference, that is sometimes hard to grasp, all power and judgment. And so that's the first reason, I think, in my mind for the conflict when I hear of God like this. Secondly, I think most people, I think most people want, maybe, I'm going to suggest, maybe we don't, but I think most people want a greater power who will hold evil people to account. I mean, I think if God was a divine power that didn't care or was not just, then he would definitely be a very different God to the God of the Bible. 
Uh, if there is some all-powerful reality, God, uh, then I would want him to be against evil and bring wrongdoers to account, wouldn't you? You know, what, what good is some all-powerful being if he doesn't care whether you've spent a lifetime helping kids or abusing them? Surely to be human is to have some sense of justice and we yearn for ultimate justice somehow. And so secondly, I yearn for a greater power who will hold evil people and evil deeds to account. I think that's a good thing. But thirdly, and I think here's the real conflict, um, a while I want a God who will call evil to account, um, I don't want a God who's going to call my evil to account. Um, I want God to deal with all the evil that's out there. I want to be able to point my finger at those who abuse kids and those who commit murders and those who run online scams. And I want to say, God, go get them, as if he was kind of like a pet dog. Um, but to be honest, I don't actually want God to look at my secret life and call me to account, because that's just way too unsettling. And so I'm left with this genuine conflict when I think about the judgment of God as described in the Bible and described here in Obadiah because I want God's judgment to come on evil but I don't have a model of how that can be done fairly and I want to be exempt from any judgment flying my way. And so I guess I want a God whom I can trust with the task of judgment. And... This is the God that the Bible reveals to us. So let's come back to Obadiah. Things get really interesting in verse 15. For here's there's a switch point in this whole prophecy, as short as it is, where Obadiah declares that this is a message not just for Edom, but for everyone, for all nations. The day of the Lord, verse 15, is near for all nations. And how about this? In a, in a powerfully poetic twist, apparently the word Edom in Hebrew, which is what this was originally written in, is almost identical to the word humanity. So it comes from this Hebrew word <clears throat> Adam, which is the word for humanity, which means in this little 21-verse Old Testament book, we have a, con a complex interplay where Obadiah is speaking directly to this little ancient nation of Edom, but he's also deliberately giving a word of warning to all of us. Poets tell us what our eyes, blurred with too much gawking and our ears dulled with too much chatter, miss around and within us. Poets use words to drag us into the depths of reality. I guess when, whenever we say in our hearts and minds, like Edom, uh, my way is better than God's, or I don't need what he offers, uh, I will soar like an eagle, I'll make my nest in the stars, I'll do it my way, then we are, in effect, enemies of God, from whom everything is given. And Obadiah urges us, don't choose to be like that. It's just a bad option. 
It won't end well for you. Not because God is bad, but because setting yourself up against him is just silly. It's too big. So what will end well for you and I? And I guess that's the second bit of Obadiah's message, that God's kingdom, he says, actually will be the one that lasts. And it involves what Obadiah calls deliverance. God doesn't give up on his people. Deliverance. Verse 17, but on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. And verse 21, he says, deliverers will go up on Mount Zion the govern, to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom, final verse, will be the Lord's. Now, why all this talk of deliverance? Well, remember where Obadiah is. He's sitting in the ruins of Jerusalem. To be delivered means to be brought through all of this. And this is a really key message. Precisely because everything I see around me in Obadiah tells me the opposite. The temple, which was considered God's holy presence, is now a pile of rubble. All the aspirational godly men and women have been shipped off to Babylon. There have been many people killed. For anyone looking at this scene, it would be obvious or maybe easy to conclude God has left the building. And I wonder whether you ever feel that way in your life as well. You ever look around the city that is your life, maybe, maybe something your past, or maybe something right now in your present, or maybe something that you fear in your future, and you think God has left the building. Well, Obadiah is sitting with you, um, but his word is one of genuine hope. God is still at work, He is present in this mess, and he'll bring deliverance. These verses remind me of another passage from the New Testament that we heard a fair fair bit of in the month of July. Philippians 1, Paul writes, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I think this is the depths of reality that the Bible leads us towards. That there, like we are part of such a bigger story. And in our messy world, we can do one of two things. We can set ourselves up against God, like Edom, or we can actually draw ourselves even closer to God, like Obadiah. And the final word of Obadiah's message is this, the kingdom will be the Lord's. That means... Whichever way we choose, one thing is certain, God's kingdom will be the one that lasts. And so the question is, at the end of Obadiah, do you want to be part of that kingdom? I do. And Obadiah keeps going on about how such deliverance into this kingdom will come from Zion. Now, Zion is another name for Jerusalem, and in classic prophet style... Uh, Obadiah was spot on. How is it that God will deal justly with my evil and I will still have the chance of being delivered and be part of his eternal kingdom? The answer is Jerusalem. (laughs) 
The answer is that wooden cross that stood on Jerusalem. The answer is the Son of God, Jesus, bearing the just punishment for my evil upon himself. Verse 17, but on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy. And I wonder if that's a sign of going, you know, it'll be holy, like it'll be something that you wouldn't do. That is exactly what God has done. As he takes the punishment for our dis ignorance of him or our rejection of him or whatever it is, he takes it on himself. It's so holy. It's so other. In other words, God will find a way. And he has. The Apostle Paul, who's caught all of this, I think, in a couple of rugged, hope-filled sentences in Romans chapter 8. He says this in, in Romans 8. He says, what then shall we say in response to all, things, all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? As in, like, whose kingdom's going to last? And how do we know God is for us? Like, show me the money. So Paul goes on. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. And Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Interceding means speaks on your behalf. Uh, and this is the core central truth of Christian faith. That even right now on this day, uh, in the heavenly realms, Jesus the Son is speaking to the Father um, on behalf of Ben right now. And he speaks to God the Father on behalf of Lee. And he speaks on behalf of Lauren and Aidan and James. And he's speaking to God the Father on behalf of you. That's what interceding means. And he's saying, oh, these ones are with me. Yeah, but look at, look at this. Look what they did. That's okay. I've covered it. They're with me. He's interceding with the Father. And the Father goes, oh, okay, sweet. They're all good. This is the heart of Christian faith, the interaction of how we can come before God because our faith is in Jesus and he then intercedes for us. You know, maybe Jesus was the greatest poet of all. <laughs> kind of drags us all into the depths of reality itself. Uh, seeing what we really need. There is ugliness there as we see the mess in our world and our lives. And we see the mess that Jesus went through. But there is also hope as God refuses to give up on us and he actually speaks on our behalf even today. I do yearn for a God whom I can trust with the task of judgment. Because uh, it's a messy world. And, and this is the God the Bible reveals to us. 
Obadiah proclaimed it. Jesus fulfilled it. And so we meet together today as God's people. We meet as men and women who have Jesus interceding for us with the Father. Not because we deserve it, but because we've been offered it. And Christian faith is about accepting what God has done for you. And so this is why we meet to hear God speak these words into our lives, each one of us. Uh, And then we go out, we move out from this space tonight. Uh, We move out first to have dinner. Then we move out into our homes, our workplaces, to be agents of grace. Uh, Kingdom representatives, I guess you could say. We seek humility because we know from Edom, but from lots of other things too, arrogance just doesn't work. It's not cool. It's not good to set yourself up as God. So don't do it. So we seek humility. We trust in God. We trust in his judgment and his deliverance. And our faith is in our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And uh, I love that God calls a people together. And so we can go out and be these agents of grace. And then next Sunday, we'll come back. Or during the week, you'll get together with a few people and encourage them at community group. And next Sunday, we'll come back and be reminded of who we are and what God has done and continue to grow up as children of his. And so I'm going to pray for us now and, uh, and just ask that you might be led to um, rely on God's goodness, the work of Jesus, and that you might have the courage to be that kind of agent of grace and humility in the space that God has you. So let me pray. Our dear Lord and loving Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that you are indeed a God who judges. Uh, You do care about right and wrong. You do care that people are loved. Uh, You care what we do with the lives that you've given us. But Lord, we all are here this afternoon as men and women who um, have done plenty of good things with the life you've given us, and we've also done plenty of bad things too. We've made mistakes. And we thank you, Lord, that you're a God who doesn't give up on us, but you've found a way. Thank you, Lord, that we are saved and clean and, and, and pronounced good through faith in your Son, Jesus I thank you that you intercede, he intercedes for us with you each and every day. And Lord, I thank you for the people that you are growing us into as children of you. So help us to keep growing and uh, to encourage each other in that as well. And we pray this in Jesus' great and uh, glorious name. Amen.